Boston doubles down on delaying gun carry permits, plus the Atlantic's Andrew Eggson in defense of hunting. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also a CNN contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. We get one email every Friday, and I think we do a pretty good job of letting you know what's going on. But this week, we have a special guest from uh, The Atlantic, contributing editor Andrew Exum, who is joining us to talk about his uh, interesting new piece on hunting. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, man. Um, and uh, can you just give people a little more background about yourself uh, who, who might not know you? Yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up in um, in East Tennessee, um, uh, went to school on an Army ROTC scholarship, um, served in the Army for a couple of years, um, was in a regular unit in Afghanistan, kind of at the beginning of that conflict, and then was uh, led a platoon of Army Rangers in, in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, after invading a couple countries and not knowing anything about the language, culture, people of the places I invaded, I decided I should probably go learn something. So I uh, did grad school out in the Middle East, um, lived most of my late 20s, early 30s in the, um, in the Middle East, learning Arabic and doing a PhD, went back to work for the U.S. Department of Defense um, in a non-political job, um, and, then, um, and then went into business. I got dragged back into public service during the Obama administration to be the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Middle East Policy. Obviously, I did a great job in that role because it's a calm and tranquil region today. Um, and, but, uh, but over the past six and a half years, I've just been back in business. Um, uh, my wife is a, is a scientist. Um, we've got four kids and we live in uh, the district of Columbia. Yeah. And you also are an avid hunter. It sounds like I am. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, you know, I had always grown up, um, around firearms, um, and, uh, and, and kind of, you know, did sports shooting from a young age, but I didn't really start hunting until I was out of the army and, uh, was married and, um, my wife is like, why do we have these firearms and why do you have, you know, why are you allegedly good at shooting things if you're not going to actually, you know, fill the freezer every, uh, every winter. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so I started hunting, um, uh, a couple of years ago when we were living in, uh, in Texas and just going to really love it. I, you know, I try to shoot a couple deer every year because that tends to be what feeds the family. But, uh, but I really enjoy upland hunting as well. Um, we've got a, uh, an American Brittany. So, um, during the falls, you can usually find me chasing, you know, grouse or woodcock somewhere. Um, really enjoy that. And that's something I enjoy with the kids as well. They, they tend to either come along with me and walk behind me and the dogs or, um, or at the very least, my four-year-old daughter loves to help me pluck the birds, um, when I come home. Nice. Um, and, and so I get, presumably this, this passion of yours is, uh, I guess, newly found passion uh, is what led you to write this piece for The Atlantic in defense of hunting. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of what you're getting at in that piece? Yeah. I mean, you know, my wife and I, we have a like we're we're odd, I guess, in, in one sense. Um, and, you know, the reason why hunting matters to us is for the same reason that we're, I mean, we're, we're not like, you know, super conservative folks, you know, far from it. Um, but, you know, we really believe in kind of living sustainably and, and the same reason why we, you know, we feel we need to be connected to our food chain. Um, we, mm. we try to garden a lot. We forage a ton. Uh, we've got some land in, um, in Western Maine where we do a lot of foraging and, and, um, and, uh, and hunting and fishing are part of that. 
right? Um, so I think, um, you know, if we're going to be eating meat, we don't want to do it in a sustainable way. Um, if we can take some deer off people's property and, um, and butcher the deer ourselves and, you know, prepare the meat ourselves and, you know, and have our children be a part of that. I just think it's a, it's an important thing. So, so yeah, so mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's kind of what we, uh, what we do. And, uh, as part of, um, you know, trying to explain that to an audience at the Atlantic, which probably skews towards the left. Although, I mean, sure. I was, I was shocked by the number of kind of positive emails and, and, you know, responses that I got from folks who I wouldn't traditionally associate with being, you know, Atlantic readers, but who'd read it. Um, I usually write on like, you know, Middle East politics for the Atlantic. And this was <laughs> something very, very different. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I, I believe Katie Pavlik from Fox, uh, had mentioned the piece oh, yeah, as okay. well. And, right. and Gabby Hoffman, who's another, um, a hunting advocate that, that I'm, uh, that I know well, and I've been on her podcast before I've seen, I've seen a number of people in the sort of hunting space discuss your piece, um, in a positive way. And I, and, you know, I, I thought it was a really good piece as well, oh, thanks, man. uh, because it, it lays out, uh, sort of the positive case for why hunting is important, right? Yeah. That, that sort of seemed to be your goal here, trying to explain this to people who aren't hunters, who might be gun skeptical, uh, why you uh, partake in in this activity, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think you know, I, I'd, there's room if you are a hunter, if you are somebody who cares about um, uh, and preserving those opportunities to hunt for like the next generation. And like I said, this is something I do with um, my oldest son. We call him the great indoorsman. He's not like so into you know being outdoors with dad, you know, hunting. But my second son like loves to go out with me. My daughter can't wait to my first, my oldest daughter can't wait to like, you know, go out with me. Um, if you're somebody who is interested in preserving those opportunities for the next generation and for whom this matters, then I think like, actually you don't necessarily line up with either kind of political party. Um, although I think, you know, the skeptics that I was really aiming at were, were folks kind of, you know, more, more left of center. I mean, you know, if you look at all the great, you know, conservation work that's been done over the past two presidents and both President Biden through the Inflation Reduction Act, as well as President Trump through the Great American Outdoors Act, they they both have a lot to be proud of in terms of conservation, in terms of expanding hunting opportunities. Um, I mean, it's it, both both presidents have a lot to be proud of. Um, but uh, and, and both of those and, you know, this is this interesting kind of historically when there are times of like real partisan divide within Washington, D.C., conservation has historically been one of those things that Democrats and Republicans can sit around the table and kind of agree on. Um, but it is true that, you know, a lot of the um, a lot of the anti-conservation voices uh, in the Senate, you know, all 25 votes against the Great American Outdoors Act, which President Trump signed, those all came from the Republican side. Um, you know, we've seen um, erosions of protections of wetlands under, you know, by, uh, you know, under the Supreme Court and the conservative judiciary. So there are reasons to be kind of frustrated if you care about conservation with, you know, with more conservative uh, Americans and with the Republican Party. By contrast, I, I, I get the sense that Democrats are so scared of offending you know, very passionate folks within the party who are deeply ambivalent or hostile towards firearms that yeah. they can't talk about the role that hunting plays towards those same conservation goals that we have. I mean, the North American model of conservation is really remarkable. And it's, it's, you know, it's one of the few like big government scientifically driven programs that we've got that has like buy-in from some of our most conservative, like right-wing Americans buy into this North American model. But the skeptics that you often have to talk to about are, are, 
you know, folks on the uh, folks on the left. And I get the sense that like, you know, the Biden administration gets it. The folks, you know, Tracy Stone Manning, who runs, you know, Bureau of Land Management, she gets it. You know, that's that's not the issue. But I just get the sense that a lot of Democrats are are hesitant to talk about it and, and to talk because hunting has become so deeply ingrained with um, with association with firearms, frankly. And and one of the things that, you know, there's been some polling that's come out over the past year and we've started to see public support for hunting at kind of the lowest um uh, levels over the past two decades. And a lot of that has to do, it seems, with just kind of general ambivalence towards any types of firearms. So it's not just kind of hunting that's unpopular or that's becoming more unpopular. It's also, you know, even things like, you know, skeet shooting or, you know, shooting sporting clays or, you know, sports shooting. Uh, more more Americans have grown, you know, ambivalent about even that. And so I think that we need to make a positive case for hunting and how it fits into our conservation goals as a country um, so that people can kind of disaggregate that with whatever their, you know, personal feelings about firearms might be. Right. And so can you just explain for us a little bit about how the system actually works right now, how hunting does, uh, you know, beyond the the physical act of, you know, taking a deer and and uh, keeping down herd sizes, uh, things like that. How else does hunting um, in in the, in America contribute to conservation efforts? Yeah, sure. Well, first off, if you're listening to this and you are a gun owner uh, and, or you regularly shoot, thank you. Um, so you know, there's a percentage of the sales tax off of you know guns you buy. Um, ammunition that you buy, whether or not you're a hunter or not, uh, whether you're a hunter or not, that go towards, um, through the Pittman-Robertson funding, that go towards conservation, that get fed into, um, you know, wildlife um, and game agencies. Um, uh, it is one of the, you know, interesting things about kind of um, um, the way it's set up is that you do have kind of at the federal level, um, you've got certain, you know, certain restrictions and certain you know, rules that govern, I mean, migratory birds, for example, you know, there are, there are certain rules that exist at more of the federal level. Um, you know, the, the fact that you can't shoot, you know, lead, um, at waterfowl, that's a, that's a federal rule that I think has been in place since, uh, since 1991 under the, the, you know, the first Bush administration, but mostly, um, you know, we, uh, we manage game in a pretty decentralized way. And, um, in the United States, so when you get a hunting license, you get it at the state level, um, also at the state level, you've got kind of biologists and, you know, fish and wildlife agencies that, that, uh, that spend a lot of time managing and kind of monitoring the game population, you know, in the United States, figuring out, um, kind of how long does the deer season need to be? Um, mm -hmm. you know, if you're going to shoot grouse, how many can you shoot on a daily basis, um, to where we were able to maintain kind of a healthy population? Um, what do we need to do in terms of working with landowners, um, for, for habitat? So, my wife and I are are blessed to own a plot of land in, in Western Maine. I'll be up there in a few weeks um, working with a biologist um, uh, from the state of Maine, kind of look at, looking at the, the land and, and seeing if some of the work that we've been doing to increase um, the habitat for uh, for grouse is paying off, for rough grouse is, uh, is paying off. So that's that's all taking place at the state level. And again, if you um, if you go get a hunting license, you don't get a federal license, you get a, a state license, and um, and that's kind of the uh, the way it works. And you buy into this pretty decentralized 
but very heavily regulated, um, you know, activity, which is again, one of just the things that's somewhat ironic, you know, my neighbors and my extremely left wing neighborhood of Washington, DC have kind of those, those signs that say, you know, in this house, we believe, and it says, you know, nine or nine or 10 things. And one of them is always, you know, science is real. Um, and yet often the people that react, you know, against, uh, against hunting are the same people that have those, those signs in their yard. Right. And I try to say that, look, you know, hunting is like the most scientifically, you know, rigorously studied um, uh, activity, government regulated, like all these things should tick a lot of boxes for, um, for, you know, left-leaning Americans like myself. And yet I think there's just deep ambivalence probably because of firearms. And also I think the association um, that a lot of Americans have, and you know, at least in their own minds with, um, with hunting being something that, oh, that's something that, that, you know, super conservative people do. And that's just, that's just not the case. Right. And, and it just, you know, I, I, I I do think that there's um, a, a lot to get at with the bipartisan nature of hunting, uh, approval for hunting. You know, we've actually seen uh, just recently there's been an issue with um, actually just published a piece today on this uh, with funding for hunting safety programs in schools. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. You, you might have uh, read about this where the, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act that was passed last year changed the language of uh, federal law to prohibit it funds going to um, the way the language reads anyone yeah. who's uh, being trained either to, to buy dangerous weapons or being trained in the use of dangerous weapons. Now, um, uh, the Department of Education under, under President Biden has interpreted this to mean that the previously funded hunter safety programs and archery safety programs that schools have done across the country can't receive funding anymore. And um, now you've had a, a bipartisan group of senators, um, actually, I believe it's nine Republicans, 12 Democrats, and then Kirsten Sinema, who's an independent that caucuses with Democrats. And um, they all sent two separate letters uh, on this issue, hoping to get the department to either change its interpretation of the law that they passed or uh, get appropriations to add language to the next funding bill here that would um, sort of uh, you know clear things up, I guess. And and that, that's one area where you have seen a significant bipartisan um, effort beyond you know outside of the the bill last year. It's really the only other time you've seen this because um, you you know you had things like the pistol brace ban that the Biden administration has uh, tried to put into place that got some action in the legislature, but it was basically all Republicans yeah. um, on board with that. You didn't get any crossover support from any Democrats in the Senate, uh, actually. Uh, and now you're seeing this materialize where there's a significant number of, of Democrats, even Chris Murphy, who, uh, you know, Chris Murphy and, and John Cornyn had uh, the, were the two senators who basically came to, came up with the Bipartisan Saber Communities Act. Um, and they're both on these letters. And, and so it's interesting, you know, I wonder how that's going to play out. Uh, but it does, I think, speak to this bipartisan um, nature yeah. that you're, you're talking about. Yeah. And my sense is that, you know, I, I follow that issue a little bit. My sense is that, you know, the, the legislation was passed and then, you know, it goes to the executive branch. And essentially, there's some confusion about like, well, wait, what does this mean? Like, do we, can we spend this on hunter safety? And, and whatever bureaucrat was just like, ah, I don't think we can, not the way that it's written. And so, you know, this, this came down 
And I think it's going to get, I mean, I think it will get taken care of. I'm pretty sanguine about this. It reminds me of, I think there was some earlier legislation last year that the state of California passed that was very much on kind of getting, you know, gun training outside the no gun training in schools, something like that. And and Uh, that was, yeah, that was on advertising to, to youth shooters. Yeah. And it shut down like school skeet teams or whatever, but they, yeah, it shut down basically like all youth competitive shooting in the state for a while. That's right. But they 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 eventually figured it out. I I do think that they're, you know, common sense tends to reign eventually. Um, But I mean, the challenge with, you know, any type of legislation is that, you know, then you have to interpret that legislation and figure out, figure out what it means. Um, I would actually love to see the Congress and state legislatures, you know, lean farther forward on this. And actually, I mean, you know, we can talk about this, this later, but um, you know, if we are, if we have had this kind of profusion of um, this explosion of small arms ownership, you know, within the United States. And if, if we're going to grow up in a, you know, if my kids are going to grow up in kind of this post Heller world in which we're just going to have a lot more firearms that I would love to see more firearms instruction in, in school and not less, certainly firearm safety and, and hunter safety in general. I, I just see it as an unambiguous good. Yeah. And I think we should talk a little bit about that because you had another piece on uh, firearms politics more uh, last year after yeah. the Uvalde shooting. Uh, where you express more of your, uh, I guess, overarching view of, of gun politics in the United States and yeah. gun culture. And, uh, you know, you're broadly uh, negative towards the idea of ownership of things like AR-15s or or um, uh, firearms of that nature uh, compared to, you know, hunting rifles or shotguns. Um, and so I did want to get your your take on that, uh, just a, a better explanation or a thorough explanation of, of sure. where you're coming from. Yeah, look, I mean, I, and this is this is something that, that your you know your own you know some of your viewers or listeners might you know might think I'm you know on a on a different planet when I say this, but but I actually think most kind of gun rights issues in America have largely been settled in the post post Heller world. I think we are mm. in a um, you know, the Supreme Court made a determination that we have individual right to gun ownership, um, which previously was was much more ambiguous. Now, now it's not, which is and it's the reason why I, as a you know a resident of Washington D.C., the District of Columbia, can can you know own firearms and can register them with uh, you know with the police department and can keep them in my house. At that's a change. Guns, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a change from um, you know from from before. I think that you're not going to, we're not going to have a legislative fix to, you know, in an ideal world, I would prefer it if we did not have all these AR-15s around our country. That'd be my preference. Um, I understand why people own them. Like they're, they are fun to shoot. I've shot hundreds of thousands of rounds out of very similar weapons, you know, throughout my, my career, especially in the, um, you know, in the army. Um, Why do you see such a difference between them and, and like, you know, a, a hunting rifle, a Remington 700 or something like that. Yeah, the ability also, to kill lots of people very fast. Mm-hmm. It's, it, that's that's what it is. Um, so it's the semi-automatic nature of it? Is that what you're... I think it's it's the semi-automatic. And it's also a reasonably large caliber. Like, we're not talking about like a Remington 1022, right? Which, you know, plenty of people plenty of people own for squirrel hunting. It's a great, you know, it's a great 22 caliber, you know, sure. rifle. But when you're talking about like a 223 or or a, a 7.62, you know, round, um, the ability to... to fire and reload them very quickly. I mean, look, it is a, I carried one for in three combat tours. They are um, excellent weapons, um, but, mm. you know, but, but weapons. Um, I understand. Sure, and, but they're, way, and they're I, also on the lower end of the rifle caliber list, right? I mean, I, you know, well, but there's, there's, but there's a reason why they are, right? 
Like the reason mm-hmm. why the U.S. Army switched to the two two three is the same reason that I I shoot a six point five PRC at deer instead of a you know three hundred Win Mac. It's easy to shoot. And like if you mm-hmm. if it's if you're you know I'm a I'm a large guy. I'm like over two hundred pounds. So, you know six foot two. Um, uh, so recoil. I'm not like hugely recoil sensitive, <clears throat> but it is just a fact <clears throat> that you know lower caliber uh, cartridges with just less of recoil are just going to be easier for, for people to shoot. And that's the reason why kind of the U S army had adopted that after shooting, you know, 30 out sixes for, you know, for the better part of a century. Um, they are just fearsome in terms of your ability to kill lots of people quickly. That's just the reality. Again, uh, I'm not out here saying that they should all be illegal or we should, you know, confiscate your weapons. That, that's, I think that is a fantasy that, you know, my more liberal friends might have, um, I think what we've got to fix first is, frankly, our gun culture. Um, you know, Stephen, I mean, I, uh, I am somebody who owns a fair amount of guns. Um, yeah. Um, and, and you know, one of the things I try to do is I probably shoot every other week. I'll go, you know, shoot sporting clays and I'll come back and I make a point of kind of cleaning my weapon or, you know, cleaning my shotguns in front of my kids and showing them how to do it and trying to introduce them to firearms in kind of a healthy way. And see, like, look, this is something that dad uses to shoot sporting clays. This is something that dad hunts with. Um, you can see when dad comes home, you know, with uh, with doves or with grouse or with the deer, you know, how he's used these uh, these firearms. And, and, you know, my wife, who grew up in the New York suburbs, she's, she thinks I'm crazy. She's like, you're trying to recapture some, like, gun culture that just doesn't exist anymore. Like, that's not the gun culture that we're, we're, our kids are growing up in. And again, Stephen, I mean, you know, I live in the District of Columbia. I think 11 people were shot this past weekend and several, several killed. Yeah. Um, that's the gun culture that my, my kids are growing up around. Um, they're growing up in, in a gun culture of school shootings, of you know doing active shooter drills in their elementary schools. I never had to do that. Now, granted, mm-hmm. when I'm an old guy, so we were doing you know kind of nuclear war drills in my uh, in my elementary school growing up. Um, sure. You know, worried about the uh, worried about the Russians more than than kind of an individual shooter. But I do think that there's there's something that's ill in gun culture in America. And I would like us to have a healthier relationship with firearms. I think there's lots of good stuff going on. Like, I think the, you know, current craze or popularity of long range shooting, I think that's really cool. I think that's, that's great. Um, But I also have some sympathy that many in your audience probably don't like agree with, you know, when president Obama talked about people clinging to their guns and their religion, I, as somebody who's like a believer in Jesus Christ and who goes to church every Sunday and also as somebody who has guns, I knew exactly what he's talking about. Because I think for a lot of people, both religion and their guns have become kind of totems or like symbols of a, of a, of like a, uh, a belonging in the society and are kind of divorced from any type of, you know, either actual faith or, um, in the case of guns, like, you know, using them in a, for sport or for, um, you know, for some sort of real recreation. It's like, it's like people identify with their weapons in a way that's just, that's weird to me, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people are going to disagree with that point of view, obviously. Sure. Um, and, and a lot of people find that very condescending. That's why he, I mean, that's why that comment endured so long. Right. Um, uh, you know, not, not to say that there's no uh, issues with sections of gun culture where people are, uh, you know, sometimes uh, overly 
violent in their rhetoric, right? I, I, like, I don't want to sit here and try yeah, and say I mean, that there's no issues that exist in with some gun owners in America. Like, I think that's it's obviously not the case, uh, nor is it the case that, uh, you know, the AR-15 is some, uh, you know, completely um, <laughs> harmless firearm. I mean, there's no such thing, right, as a harmless firearm. Yeah. I guess, uh, you know, a lot of people would just uh, oftentimes when you hear these arguments, um, you start to wonder like, what, where do you, where would you draw the line? I mean, you, you know, there, there's far more powerful calibers. There's semi-automatic action has been around for, I mean, since the 1890s, um, rifles are not, while they are involved in a number of very high profile shootings, like you discussed there, um, uh, you know, with mass shootings, uh, yeah. they're, they're not the most common firearm for, uh, to be used in murders, especially not the kind sure. that you were describing in DC, right? Those sure. Are I mean, we got a, we've got a proliferation of ghost guns in, in DC. You know, when you look at kind of uh, firearm violations in, in Washington, DC, mm-hmm. I mean, look, the only thing I would say is that, I mean, I, I grew up around guns um, and I grew up in uh, a different type of gun culture where mm-hmm. I do not recommend this. All my guns are securely stored. I'm sure that's the case for all of your listeners as well. But like we all grew up in a, an era where, you know, dad had like rifles propped up either in the closet or like behind a door. I mean, that was that was like the standard. That was not something that was seen out of the norm. But um, that was just it was just a different uh, it was just a different culture. Uh, around mm-hmm. guns. And I, I'll, I'll notice, a, you know, I'll notice something that when I came back from, bear in mind that between 9-11 and roughly 2008, I didn't spend much time in America. Um, so I was either at war or I was, you know, o- otherwise abroad. And when mm-hmm. I returned, I noticed a big difference. I mean, I remember driving with my mom from my hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee to Nashville and seeing like stuff on, you know, billboards advertising like pink ar-15s and just going why why would anyone ever want that i just didn't i just didn't understand it did not compute to me and again i recognize that people do hunt with you know sporting modern sporting rifles i understand that people also hunt with like handguns but those are pretty exceptional right like those that's not the norm um most people hunt with you know designs that would have been seemed very familiar and you know 1870 much less uh, yeah i mean i think i think just at the end and i don't we don't we don't need to spend a lot of time on this because when i get back to the hunting part because i actually do have some more questions on that but yeah i think people hear the these attitudes and i'm sure you've heard um people have a derogatory name for this right fuds Fuds, yeah or fud yeah people and the idea is meant to be that like uh you know you, you there's guns that you like and you you're okay if the guns that you don't like get get banned right that as long as you have your guns that's how people look at this yeah right? and there's there that's is, how critics will yeah and there's also you know i think a bit and of, that it's a lot of aesthetic stuff like yeah oh, I that's don't like right the, why would you want a pink gun well i mean some people just enjoy that aesthetically um <laughs> And you don't, nobody has to buy yeah. a pink gun. And, there, and I, I can see there's also like some snobbery, right? Like when in mm-hmm. kind of upland hunting, um, you know, there's some people that wouldn't be seen without, you know, not just a, a you know, break action shotgun, but like a, sure. a, a double gun, right? Like a side by side. Otherwise, you're, you know, you're, you're kind of gauche. Right. If you, if you know, if you're hunting birds with a semi-automatic. Um, so I, I know that there's some, some, some snobbery there as well. I think it's just a reality that like, 
you know, if you're if you're like me, if you're just the average American, when you see an AR-15 in the news, it's probably not for anything good. It's probably because sure. somebody's done something horrible, like horrific with it. And right. uh, you know, but when, there's 24 million of them out there, and only a tiny fraction are you. Yeah, you, you understand. <laughs> I don't think what you're what helping yourself. I think a lot of Americans are going to ask. Why are there 24 million out there? And I don't ask it with like, you know, why should they be, you know, we should ban them or we should confiscate them. I just, I'm genuinely curious. Like I understand like I, the thing, the thing where I probably differ from a lot of your listeners, you know, Steven, Mm -hmm. is that I just don't have like the paranoia of the, I got, I got friends that have AR-15. So I'm like, why do you, why do you own those things, man? And they're Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, um, I'm worried about, you know, the, the federal government, federal government overreach. And, you know, we're recording today on September 7th and like Liberty safes. I've got like two Liberty safes that's trending on, on Twitter right now. Cause I guess they allowed like the FBI to access some January 6th suspects, you know, safe or something like that. And like mm-hmm. people are up in arms, like people are really like literally up in arms, really angry at Liberty safe. That's where I just don't understand. Like I'm not down with kind of that paranoia. And that kind of suspicion of of the federal government, maybe that's actually because I'm from the South, and because when when we've seen kind of like government tyranny in American history in the South, it's usually from then from state and local governments, not from kind of the, the federal government. But um, but you know, I just I just don't identify with it. And I think the people yeah. that do that do have kind of that real suspicion of the federal government. I think they're much more likely to think that they need an AR-15. I just don't don't see it. And so I, I mean, just think like, it's weird. Yeah. And then look, I'm sure there are plenty of people who think that's that's uh odd. I mean, you can see it in the polling, right? I and mean, certainly uh there are lots of Americans who support banning them. I mean, yeah. I know you said you don't, but but um uh you know, obviously beyond the sort of political philosophy of owning a firearms as a deterrent to tyranny, which is a legitimate and real reason why a lot of people own yeah. firearms. There are obviously a lot of practical reasons to own an AR-15 uh, from just the modular design of it. You can make it um, into whatever sort of gun you need to, you would want to use it for competition to shooting, sport competition shooting, shooting. Um, home defense is uh, another good reason to have an AR. Um, you know, they're, they're very capable rifles, as you know. Um, and, and, that's where I think to do what you know, though, there's Stephen, no, like, I mean, like here, let me, let me pose it this way. So, mm-hmm. you know, some of the earliest like firearms games, like skeet, for example, take skeet as an sure. example. Why does skeet exist? Skeet exists because grouse hunters in new England were like, what do we do when it's not grouse season? If you ever hunted grouse, it's hard. You walk forever mm-hmm. and then they pop up real quick. And like, you may, you, you may just get a, you rarely get a shot that is like clean usually firing through brush. So how can you improve your, your reaction times? Well, so skeet was born like as a means to, Mm -hmm. for grouse hunters to practice that. Sure. What are people practicing when they're practicing three gun? I mean, what do they need to be practicing for a practical outcome? I mean, you know, certainly there's sport shooting that exists to prepare you for real world events, but it doesn't have to be that way. But I I mean, when I, when but, you play football, are you preparing for some sort of life event where you're going to run through a dozen yeah, people? Yeah, but, but at the same know? time, at the same time, we think like the the drift towards tactical weaponry. I do mm-hmm. think it it leads towards kind of fantasies of kind of conflict, right? In ways that 
Look, I just think I just think we have to be, you know, we have to be honest about kind of the connection of certain types of weapons to I mean, there's a difference between a Benelli Ultralight and a Benelli M4, right? Uh, well, you know, the other is, thing that one also is designed happened. for upland hunting, one is designed for something else. Yeah, room breaching or stuff. Sure. I understand. Um, but you know, another significant thing that happened to lead to the rise of popularity of AR-15s was the global war on terror, which, yeah. you know, you participated in there. A lot of people became trained on these guns. Same reason that the 1911 became so popular. Uh, it's both civilian ad admiration for the military that leads to that, but also veterans like these firearms. They use them when they were in the service and they want them when they're not. Right. And so, like, I don't think it needs to be a nefarious thing. Like, I, I understand that's, look, there's I think that's the case. There's, there's I, look, man, I got, I got plenty of friends that, that served and they're like, why do you own those? And it's like, well, that's because the weapon sure. I was trained on. I think that's I, a minor. I get yeah, it. That's, I get it. Like, right. I'm not, I'm not, like I said, I'm not one that's like, you know, thinks that the government should knock down people's doors and take sure. these things away. I just, I just would ask people, like, ask, ask themselves, why do you really need it? If it's for home defense, why not, like, Remington 870? Why not, you know, uh, sure. Beretta A300? You could you, you could know? say this, but you could make that argument all the way down to, like, a single-shot break action. Uh, that's what I mean. Like, the where people draw the line is going to be very different, depending on what they yeah. determine they need. You know, it does, just because you own an AR-15 doesn't mean you're planning to overthrow the government or... No. Uh, you know, carry out a mass shooting. Obviously, I'm sure we both agree on that point. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. I just again, I would just say yeah. that I read about AR-15s in the news all the time, and it's never for anything good. Never for anything good. Yeah, I mean, I I read about nine millimeter handguns in the news, or all the, or maybe I shouldn't read about it even more because those are <laughs> much more common in, in crime. But yeah. I don't think that everybody who owns a nine millimeter handgun is a potential, you know. Uh, gang murderer right now but there's there's you know ambivalence about that as well i mean look you are right like where do you draw the line because we do draw the line right there are certain types yeah. of weapons that that you can't own without a certain you know without even you know kind of licenses beyond i mean we can't own can't own my own personal m240 bravo like i can't, I can't own crew served weapons right sure. I mean, maybe there might be some way you could own them but you probably have to i mean you can you, you, like, you gotta get like an ffl and, and a, some other you gotta stuff, be right? an nf yeah you know, they have to be registered right. in the nfa right so exactly so. Exactly. Uh, so, you, so we've established that there is a case where we allow, we understand there has to be some sort of registration, right? And again, it goes down to where you draw that line. I mean, my mother, well, obviously, my mother-in-law doesn't different. think I should, we should own any weapons, right? Like, right. She, and there, she doesn't there are understand. lots of people who think you should be able to own yeah, machine exactly. guns. It's, I would not say it's a majority exactly. position, but it, it, there are plenty of people, especially in the gun rights community, that do believe that. So, yeah, I mean, yes. there's look, there's certainly lines all over the place, and. And uh, and we don't have to, nobody has to agree. And, and there's hundreds of millions of gunners in the country, uh, or at least somewhere near 100 million, depending on the numbers you look at, yeah. the estimates that you have. And not everyone is going to agree. Right. And that's one of the things about the podcast. Like, I, I think have people I think what I try to do, Stephen, when I'm trying when I'm thinking about this as a father, I am trying to introduce my own children to firearms in a healthy way. Right. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. so I am the first thing I'm introducing them to is the Winchester model 47 single shot 22 that I was first introduced to, right? Sure. Like, you know, almost four decades ago. Um, I'm trying to introduce them to, um, hunting and to using, you know, firearms as a means of take, right. Mm -hmm. Um, in the same way that you, you know, I'm introducing my children to archery. That's, that's my decision as kind of yeah. as a father. And I sure. understand, you know, sure. other people have a different, different approach. 
But I am thinking about what do I think a healthy relationship with firearms is, both as a family and as a as an individual. What type of relationship do I want my own children to have right. with firearms? And that that's kind of behind my own decision making. I understand that people are in different different places, and that um, that some people you know don't feel comfortable with firearms at all. Um, those people, you know, I'd love to have a conversation with those folks and you know show them how the way in which in my family we use firearms, um, you know, as part of uh, as part of hunting and as part of yeah. the, the things that we do. I also understand that you know some folks use firearms in ways that make me uncomfortable, right? Because it just looks a lot like, you know, what I used to do when my job was, um, you know, a little bit more grim. Yeah. yeah, And, and, and I think that's a, a conversation everybody has to have with themselves, right? yeah. what their comfort level is with firearms and where, how they want to, um, you know, uh, introduce them to their family. And, and, uh, to bring it back to hunting, because we did get sidetracked for longer than I meant to, but um, uh, you know, this uh, that idea you have there of teaching your kids about yeah. firearms responsibility, the yeah. responsible use of firearms through hunting, and sort of this uh, ethos, uh, hunter's ethos, I guess yeah. you, you might yeah. call it, of uh, you know sustainability of using your own two feet to go out and um, and. and harvest the game that yeah. you're going to eat yeah. for yourself because there is this danger i think and i believe you talk about this in your atlantic piece of uh you know thinking that your food comes from the grocery store i mean that's right? the famous that Aldo leopold there. quote right which yeah. is that uh you know the this is the great danger of not hunting not fishing that you know not farming which is that you lose track of kind of where you know, where the stuff comes from. Mm-hmm. I also think there's something else that I think, you know, to, to bring it to a place where I think I would hope that everybody listening to this podcast has a, um, you know, shares as common ground, um, you know, responsible, you know, responsible use of firearms and responsible um, handling of firearms and just teaching my kids very early on, like, yeah. what do you, what do you do when you come across a firearm? Right. What mm-hmm. do you do? Do you touch mm-hmm. it? Do you go tell, you know, do you go tell an adult? Um, how do you treat a farm? You know, treating the fire, every farm as if it's loaded, never pointing at anything that you're not willing to, uh, to you know, to destroy. Um, those are important rules, I think, that we need to start teaching kids earlier and earlier. And that's why, you know, as we, we talked about, you know, hunter safety, I would love kind of all, <laughs> almost all, uh, you know, schools to have some sort of rudimentary, just kind mm-hmm. of firearm safety hunter safety, um, just something, because I, I do think that, you know, whether or not you're somebody who's listening to this podcast and thinks that, you know, our firearms laws are way too restrictive, or whether you're somebody listening to this podcast and thinks that it's insane that we're, uh, we're able to have the firearms that we do have in this country, regardless of that, in a post-teller world, like firearms are just a reality. There's something that our kids are going to be growing up with. And again, mm-hmm. what, what I try to do is, is try to you know, teach my kids a healthy appreciation of, uh, of, of firearms and, and turn it into something positive that, that folks can, um, you know, that we can, can use for, uh, for, for good to put food on the table for the family. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, um, just to close things off here, I'm me and my girlfriend have just signed up for uh, a hunter safety course for the first time here nearby to, here in Virginia at Fort Belvoir. Uh, they've got a free course that we're we're going to, and uh, she because she was interested in, in in getting into hunting. She's from the Philippines uh, originally, but she's an American citizen now. And and um, you know, obviously, I've been into firearms for a long time, but I've never hunted before. I've never 
uh, you know, I guess I've always been a little bit squeamish about it, to be honest. Really? Uh, yeah, not really interested in killing anything. <laughs> oh, wow. Squirrels and stuff. But, I've, yeah. you know, as I've gotten older, I think I, I've gotten you, a little like, bit I, more. No, now I'm curious. Now i got to interview you. Like, how do you get yeah. interested in just farms overall? Do you just you know, just kind of enjoy them? Do you enjoy kind of handgun marksmanship or, or what, do you, what do you enjoy? Yeah, no, I, you know, I got into it later in life, um, okay. after college, uh -huh. uh, it was the, one of my first jobs, there was a fun day and one of the options was, it was just at, uh, the boss's like cabin and out in the Virginia woods. Yeah. And one of the things they had to do was, was skeet shooting with a, with a, like a Remington 870 <laughs> <Yeah>. and <a laughs> hand thrown, Which is not easy if you're shooting doubles, by the way. If you're, oh, no, it was hand, hand, hand thrown play That's okay, too. Yeah. So yeah, but, yeah. uh, um, but still not like your ideal set, not what you would yeah. get if you went to an actual skeet shooting sure. range. Sure. But, um, you know, I'd always been afraid of firearms in the sense that I was afraid of recoil. Oh, really? Uh, never been afraid of getting shot or anything yeah. like that. Um, but, I hope not. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I grew up <laughs> in like a small town, but yeah. there were other people around hunted, but I, we, yeah. our family never was involved with firearms yeah. much. So I just didn't have that exposure and was afraid of recoil. Yeah. mainly when I first started. And so then I shot that shotgun and I hit the clay. Yeah. And so it was like, oh, first of all, it didn't hurt. Yeah. Uh, although I wouldn't recommend starting a novice on a 12 gauge shotgun, but that is how I got it. Um, and it was a lot of fun. And so from there, I just kind of became more and more interested in it uh, personally. And, um, you know, with firearms, it's like shoes, right? You, yeah. You, I have, you know, how many do you, need well yeah uh how many you want more than i uh, or how many you have i'm sorry there's a whole yes. saying that i'm screwing up right how many do you have more than i need but not as many as i want yes and yes. You, can, you know like shoes you can get like, by with one gun or one pair of shoes but you know you might want a different gun for all sorts of different things just like you might want different shoes for different sorts of events or yeah. outings or whatever and so um you know it's snowballed from there but i still I'm, never I, my wife in, is very familiar hunting. with this conversation because I have, right. uh, you know, I have way too many shotguns for, for various, various <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I was also, you know, I, my dad's a contractor. Um, so I, I grew up working with my hands in that way, but obviously yeah. I'm a writer, so I don't do that professionally. And so I'm into building computers. I'm into working on my car yeah. and guns are a natural fit. I know people probably don't, might not think that initially, but it's very similar building a computer and building a gun you're building from parts you're mm -hmm. uh you're customizing in the way that you want it you know i built the ar that's behind me on the oh, wall cool. here and uh, another sort of aspect of yeah. why people like the gun but but you know there, there's uh there, the mechanics of how a gun operates is another thing that yeah. uh, interests me as well as yeah. yeah learning to shoot well is is difficult right skill to master um fairly easy to get the basics of shooting down yes but mastering, you know, precision is, well, is hard. I, I feel that way. I mean, I, I like, I'm, I'm, you know, I feel reasonably confident that I, you know, when I hold a pistol or a rifle, because the basic principles of marksmanship are yeah. pretty simple. Um, right. And you can just repeat those, you know, it's just kind of, you know, breathing trigger squeeze, you know, it's, it's, it, they don't change. Mm -hmm. um, one of the reasons I love shooting shotguns is that I'm not naturally good at it. I wasn't naturally good at it. It's just different. Like you're not aiming, you're, you're, you know, you're pointing. It's, it's a much more athletic, you know, it's uh, in, endeavor. And, uh, and I really enjoy it. So look, um, yeah. my promise to you is that when you get your hunting license, like let's go hunt together. 
Let's wait yeah. for Woodcock season and like Virginia That'd and Maryland. Let's get out there. You'll see the dogs at work. You'll see a different, you know, you may only shoot once at once the entire day or not at all. Right. <laughs> but it's, um, but it's, uh, it's fun. And I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah. And that's another thing. Like I'm hoping to get resources on how to actually get involved in the hunting in hunting and without knowing people going in. Cause obviously there's a lot of like, uh, you grow up into hunting in a lot of cases. Yeah. And so if you don't have that background, if you don't have somebody who can show you, it's, it's harder to do, but, uh, so that, you know, that, that'd be wonderful if, if we could do that. Well, and, I, and, you know, to I have me, no idea where you are, but like, I'm probably the only <laughs> person in my alley in my neighborhood that like, you know, uh, uh, I'm, butchered I'm in deer. Alexandria. Okay. So I, butchered, not too I, yeah, I butchered a deer in my garage last year, the day after Christmas. I'm probably the only person. I don't think my apartment would let me do that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but the next time I do that, you should come over and watch that because like the process okay. of taking, you know, something that you shot, like the, pro- as soon as you shoot it and, you know, recover the animal at that point, like the process by which it becomes something that you shot and becomes from an animal to then becoming meat on the table. That's mm. a whole nother process. Yeah. And that's something that like, I also really enjoy and get my kids involved in because that I think is, is, is an important part of, of hunting as well. And a lot of people just say, I kind of take their deer to a, a processor. I don't, I, uh, I like to, you know, butcher it and process it all myself. Um, mm. and, uh, which I, you know, much to my wife's chagrin, uh, which I do in like the garage and our, our, you know, in our, and in our basement. But I think that's also a really important thing. So when you get your hunting license, like, you know, count on me, yeah. I'll, I'll teach you to, and I'm sure a lot of people will also do this. I mean, there's a, within kind of the hunting community, they, you know, they place a, a real emphasis on getting new people out into the field, introducing mm. them to hunting. Um, and, uh, you know, to the degree that I can do that for you, let me know. And your, and your yeah. girlfriend. Yeah. You know, and, and for me, you know, a big part of it is just, I eat meat all the time. Yeah. And so this idea that I, I, I am too uncomfortable to hunt, even though I, you know, I'm perfectly happy to eat the food. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Well, I mean, right? yeah, so, I, I agree. I mean, this is one of the reasons why, you know, why, um, why my wife and I kind of were looking around and we're like, you know, if we're just going to keep eating meat, which we're going to, because meat's delicious, like yep, we should do is. this in a sustainable way. And so, yeah. um, so we've tried to try to do that. I don't think my kids ate ground beef until like June this year. It was all, it was all, you know, ground, ground venison. So mix in yeah. with a little pork <laughs> fat. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I will, we'll, we'll have to, re- we'll have to connect outside of the yes. podcast and, and, uh, I'll have to give people an update when, once we do this. I know you, 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 you need to do it. Hey man, thanks for the conversation. Yeah. Thanks for, I, I appreciated the, uh, you know, the, the back and forth. I think, you know, I'm probably in a very <laughs> different place than a lot of your listeners on, um, on, uh, on gun culture, but I'm also in an extremely different place than, than most people on the political left regarding gun culture. So, yeah. uh, so it's a lonely place that I occupy in the, well, but uh, I, find it, I think you're, I think it's interesting and I yeah. think it's worth discussion. Uh, you know, your whole background and, and your, your worldview is, is definitely fascinating. Uh, and we, that's the kind of people we like to have on here. Um, so I appreciate you being willing to come on and to even, and to talk, get into some of that stuff. Well, thanks, the main topic was, was the hunting aspect. So I, I appreciate yeah. you being able to do both and, and giving people the audience, you know, a, a good understanding of where you're coming from on this. Yeah, issue yeah. And too. thanks, thanks to the audience for, uh, for, for their patience as well. I'm sure they're, hopefully they're equally offended by both of us.
<laughs> and so where can people find more of your writing if they, if they want to follow? Yeah. You know, these days, again, I've got four kids and I've got a full-time job. Um, so I, I write for the Atlantic irregularly, but, uh, but when I write, I tend to write for the Atlantic and, you know, I write book reviews and things as well, but, but the Atlantic's probably a pretty good place to find me. All right. Wonderful. We're going to head over to our news update now. So appreciate right. it. Thanks, man. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined, as always, by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? I'm doing great. Uh, you know, football just started last night. The The Lions beat the Chiefs, which was interesting to watch. Um, I did pick the the Lions to cover, so I was pretty happy about that. Yeah. Uh, they were The Chiefs were four-and-a-half-point favorites, so um, it wasn't, you know... You're never sure, and that's I, I think it should have been a larger line, but hey, the lines picked it off anyway. So, uh, pretty happy about that, although not very happy, uh, with Sky Moore, who I started in one of my fantasy leagues and got I think he got 0. 0.4 points. Yeah, so, that's a little rough. That was cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you would think on the Chiefs' offense, this high power offense where they pass a lot with Travis Kelsey out, that. Sky Moore or did, uh, Tony, the other guy that they have, who like nobody's, uh, you know, how are these guys going to shape out? You'd think one of them, somebody on the, the Chiefs office is going to benefit at some point, right, in fantasy. But uh, apparently not because they both were terrible. And, <laughs> yeah, that's um, rough. I didn't start Tony, at least, just more because I figured, well, all right, he's more likely to do something and he did nothing. So great. That was great. What about you? Did you have anyone playing last night? Yeah, so I have David Montgomery on my team, and uh, he had a pretty good game. He got in the end zone, so I'm pretty pretty excited. Off to a good start for the fantasy season. And uh, like you, you said, I'm just excited football's back. It's It's been far too long since we've had some some football on. Yeah, me too. Uh, although I think Cooper Cup is on – I drafted Cooper Cup in one of my leagues. Oh, yeah. And nobody – I still don't know if we have an answer as to what's going on with him, if he's going to go yeah. on IR or what. So not not a great start for me. Uh, not super happy. But I am very happy that football is back. And I'm looking forward to the Eagles playing on Sunday and uh, to just sitting around watching Red Zone all day outside of when the Eagles are specifically playing. Yeah. And and also now, uh, you know, Red Zone or uh, sorry, not Red Zone, but uh, Sunday ticket. You can it's easy to get now because yep. you don't have to buy direct TV along with it. Uh, so that's nice. Although. <laughs> Uh, this is the, the first time I could realistically buy it is also the first year where the Eagles, I don't know that they're ever not going to be on nationally because they're playing like primetime games, like half the season. And then a lot of the other games they're playing are later late day games. So they're not necessarily playing at the same time as the commanders or whatever they call themselves now uh, here in DC. So there isn't, you don't necessarily have that conflict where where the local stations are going to pick one over the other because they're going to pick the commanders every time but so i don't know i don't know i don't know if i'm even ever going to need a sunday ticket which is good for the bank account i guess i was gonna say it saves money <laughs> yeah. but i also went to uh the as people could probably tell from the shirt uh anyone watching on youtube the postal service death cab for cutie concert in dc was the Apparently, I didn't realize this until we were there. It was the opening show of that tour. Uh, this is the 20th anniversary tour for the their first two albums, uh, Transatlanticism and Give Up. And it was amazing. Um, and it was at the Anthem, which is a very nice, newer 
uh, venue in DC down at the wharf. The wharf was, uh, we, <laughs> everything there is wildly overpriced. Um, it's very nice, like new developed area of DC, but my, oh my God, we went to a restaurant that was an insane, insanely overpriced and the food was not good. <laughs> and then we went, uh, we bought some, I wanted, it was like a hundred degrees. First of all, it's been super hot in DC this week, but we, I, I bought some uh, mochi wrapped ice cream and we got four of them, four little, you know, ice cream balls for $14. And they also <laughs> were not good. Yeah. Like this another, like, I was like, man, I'm never coming back to the wharf again. That's sort of uh, a sign of the times. Everything's overpriced the, and it's not that great. <laughs> everything was wildly overpriced. And it's funny because it all costs more than like the tickets. The tickets were the only thing that wa weren't overpriced. I paid $50 <laughs> to park there, which is nuts. Yeah. Uh, in the parking garage. I mean, man, it was a terrible experience outside of the actual concert, which was amazing. Thank God. Uh, and wasn't even like next time I'm going to the, anything at the Anthem, I'm just not going to do anything else there. And I'm going to find somewhere else to park and walk over there because everything else about the experience on the wharf was was not enjoyable. It was, it's nice. Like it's new. But man, while it's and I don't know, maybe it's just because of the restaurant that we ended up at. Um, but wow. Yeah. Not, not a good time, uh, before the concert, the, the concert was amazing. They, you know, it's funny cause it's the 20, 20 year anniversary of these two albums and they played the entire albums all the way through, uh, which was great. And then, they, and then they did a couple encores, but I mean, I'm getting, I getting a little old for concerts, right? Like it started at seven 30 or whatever, but and uh, of course there's an opening act, right? I, like there's always an opening act. They don't, I don't, didn't see anywhere on the, any of the materials that said there was going to be an opening act, but there was, which is fine. She was, it was good, but also not why I went there to see right on a weeknight as a 36 year old guy and then stand around for an like half an hour between when the opening act finished and the band actually came, the death cab came out. I just, oh my gosh, I did not, I didn't, and it's standing room only. And man, it's just the, the, the albums, ironically enough, talk a lot about going gray and getting old and, uh, from 20 years ago when I was not doing either of those things. And now I am, and I, I don't know that I can stand for concerts for, for that long anymore. <laughs> but of course the seats at the Anthem are like 10, you know, three times more expensive than standing room. So, right. I don't know. It was, it was worth it in the end. Um, but yeah, my bank account didn't enjoy the, the whole experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least the show is good. That's what counts. And I got this nice $40. Yeah. I was going to say that over the concert merch. <laughs> yeah. What about you? You got anything, do anything fun or have anything coming up? Yeah. So this, I'm just excited for this weekend. It's a big, big football weekend here in Colorado. Mm. Obviously the Broncos open up on Sunday. Everyone's excited to see what Sean Payton's going to do with the team. And then Saturday, the Colorado Buffaloes play Nebraska, old classic college football rivalry. And the Buffs are finally looking go. like they're good again with Coach Prime. So it's just going to be a, a huge football weekend. I'm excited. That's right. Yeah, I forgot that that's where that whole I, I'm not a big I'm not big into college football. I mean, I went to a small Christian school, so we didn't even have a football team. But um, yeah, if 
I, the whole Coach Prime thing is is pretty fascinating. And they won, right? They won their oh, first yeah. game. They beat TCU, uh, who was the runner-up in the yeah. national championship last year. So that's a big win. Right. So that's pretty fascinating to see. Uh, you know, I know that's not normal in Colorado, right? Yeah, yeah. We haven't been good for a while. We, you know, we used to be yeah. a great you know, powerhouse football school, but not for mm. a couple decades at least. So, Well, that's exciting then. I love football. Um, I, I'm definitely going to sit on Sunday and just watch, was it eight hours of of uninterrupted football? That's the red zone. That's the pitch. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's what I'm going to do for sure. (laughs) And and more than that, really, because that, that ends before Sunday night football. Uh, So, uh, you know, I'm going to continue to do that. Thank God for football. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) back. let's get to the news that people came here for. Uh, What do we got? going on. Sure. So yeah, we'll head over to the headlines in the newsletter. Uh, So first, we got a story from the Wall Street Journal about a bill, Assembly Bill 28, that just cleared the uh, California State Senate, which would add an 11% excise tax on all firearm and ammunition sales in California. And this would be in addition to the federal excise tax uh, that funds conservation efforts. Um, And I believe California already has like a $37 fee as well that they levy on gun and ammunition sales. So this is going to be a pretty hefty uh, tax hike for folks looking to buy, you know, ammunition and and firearms going forward, if this is going to pass. And it's looking like all indications suggest that it's going to pass both chambers and go to Newsom's desk. Yeah, uh, this is sort of a gimmick that you see occasionally from Democrats. Uh, There was a House bill along these lines, although this one is at least somewhere in the realm of not completely laughable, I guess. I mean, it's obviously pretty high, but I think the the House bill in the in Congress was like, you know, 150. It wasn't like a thousand percent tax or something. Yeah, I, I believe so. Um, on on uh, so-called assault weapons. Right. It's basically like a way of banning them, but using taxes instead. Sort of the old school method, the, the National Firearms Act. Right. Method. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting it's a more interesting tactic. Right. Because Cong- the government has a taxing authority. Right. And it's not as highly questioned as other attempts to like outright ban products or something. Uh, But obviously at some point that runs up against the second amendment, right? And it'll be really interesting to see how that all plays out. If this bill does get into law in this form, Uh, like you said, it probably will. And um, I'm, I'm very sure that it'll be challenged. Uh, And I don't know. Well, you know, where, where is that? There's obviously a, a conflict there between the Second Amendment right and the taxing authority of the government. And, uh, you know, because there's some there's got to be a tipping point somewhere. It's just where the courts are going to draw it, I think, is is going to be the ultimate question. I mean, you know, in the post Bruin era, presumably they'll have to find some historical analog for taxing guns and ammunition at that high a level. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, they might just have to find that they're, they've been taxed. It, it's it's definitely a more um, more difficult, I think, provision for gun rights advocates to go after than just a regular ban or something of that nature. Yeah, I think, like you said, it'll be interesting to see once it does pass what, what happens with it in the courts. Um, but speaking of the courts, uh, our other link, we have a story out of Reuters. That's uh, We have a federal ruling from a judge in New York uh, that issued an injunction against 
the company Rarebreed Triggers that's known for selling what are called forced reset triggers, which as sort of the name implies, after you pull the trigger, it forces your finger forward, it forces the trigger to reset. So in theory, you can fire the weapon faster. And the government argued that this was essentially a machine gun. And the judge in this case decided that they were likely to succeed in the merits of that and, and ordered the company to stop selling these. So that's you know a pretty big ruling. Yeah, certainly. And this is going to be another fight similar to the bump stock ban uh, between the ATF and, and gun rights advocates. And I doubt it's over after that. Certainly, I think you'll see more, uh, more of these lawsuits and further appeals on this matter. So it's, it's another one to keep an eye on, right? Another one that's implicated in all of these recent ATF uh, decisions and, and their um, attempts to restrict certain kinds of firearm accessories and parts. Right. And then the final link we'll talk about uh, is sort of a follow-up to a story we actually covered uh, a few months back. Uh, so Texas just passed a bill in their last legislative session to require that schools have at least one armed personnel at every school in the state, every public school um, in the state, whether it's a police officer, private security, or armed staff, schools get some discretion. And so we have a story from the Associated Press that apparently uh, many schools are having some trouble fulfilling that requirement. And a lot of them are blaming the funding. So there was funding included in the bill, but some of them are saying it's insufficient for the task of ensuring that there's armed staff. So it's sort of interesting. That there's a, a logistical hurdle. Yeah, this is where the rubber meets the road on these kind of policies, right? And it's the kind of thing that I think gets a lot of support, especially if it's, uh, you know, some sort of officially trained security officer or police officer. But, you know, there's real world issues in terms of finding the money to do this sort of thing. It's hard to fund schools generally, right, right. in a lot of places. So adding a security officer on top of that, uh, while there might be a great deal of agreement that it should happen in the wake of things like Uvalde, um, it's in practice, it gets harder to implement than it does in, in theory. Everything's pretty easy to implement in theory. Right. Um, and then on to some of the stories we covered this week. Uh, this kind of relates a little bit to the main interview, but uh, we had that letter that a group of bipartisan lawmakers uh, sent to the Department of Education trying to clarify perhaps what they thought their intent was in passing the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act and urging uh, funding to be reinstated for school hunting programs and, and other related programs that involve weapons. So it's sort of interesting to see a, a bipartisan group of senators come back together after you know, being the bipartisan group that passed this bill in the first place. Yeah, it's really the first significant bipartisan push on gun policy since the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Um, you know, there have been a number of other gun policy pushes. There's even been, uh, we talked about recently, the um, pushback against another aspect of the bill and how it's been enforced with uh, with the um, <clears throat> uh, the president's plan to expand who needs a gun dealing license based on a language change in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. But this is the first one that's captured uh, a lot of senators from either side of the aisle and in particular, really powerful senators and <clears throat> senators from significant uh, states, like swing states, I should say. Uh, you know, Pennsylvania, both of the their Democratic senators, you've got both senators from West Virginia, um, both senators from Arizona, you had 21 in total. You had, you know, John Cornyn and Chris Murphy are on one of these letters. Um, and they were the ones who led the negotiations on, on the bill in the first place. So, uh, this just gives you an insight into where 
Washington is, what, at least in the Senate, they agree on as far as a gun policy, and that's we should continue to fund these hunter safety programs, archery programs. Um, now, to be fair to the Department of Education here, uh, the language sure does suggest that they can't use those federal funds for any sort of training involving any dangerous weapon. And that could actually, because of the definition of dangerous weapon being very broad, uh, that could even include like kitchen knives, uh, which they talk about in the letter. So kind of seems like a drafting error on their part. They didn't intend to do this, but the language sure suggests it's how it's being done the, the way it's supposed to. And um, so that one of the things they asked besides telling DOE to change how they're looking at this language is that they asked the appropriations committee to add in some new language to fix the problem. And I think that's probably what's going to end up actually happening. Right. Like you said, it uh, certainly sounds like a drafting error, but it does lend credence to what we heard from some of the Republican senators that you reached out to previously about this, that they, they truly didn't expect that this was going to uh, you know, be the eventual outcome from that provision. But certainly, as you pointed out, yeah. it's kind of hard. To I imagine. think it was it was meant to um, prevent the use of those federal funds for training teachers to carry guns. Basically, yeah. that's yeah. what they were trying to prevent or trying to like clarify. But instead, the language was so broad that uh, it, they ended up going much further than that. <laughs> uh, what's and we got one time for one more story. What's the last one? Yeah, so we actually have a, a new lawsuit against the city of Boston. Uh, we've covered Boston being sued by gun rights groups in the past, and they're back again because they're alleging that the city's police department, their licensing unit in particular, is sort of slow walking its processing of applications for uh, carry permits. Um, this is you know a pretty common thing we've seen in a lot of big cities lately, and certainly Boston's no exception. A few of the plaintiffs in this case, uh, have, at least two of them at least, have alleged that they've been waiting for longer than six months to even hear back about when they can do their fingerprinting and, and complete the process. When Massachusetts state law gives these licensing authorities 40 days to process an application and arrive at a decision. So clearly there is some delay, whether or not it's intentional. That's sort of what's being alleged in the lawsuit, but that'll be for the courts to, to flush out. Yeah, but I think we can all make an educated guess on that point. Right? Um, right. Especially since they did this before, right? This is not the right. first time they've been sued over this ex exact practice of slow walking applications. Um, you've seen this in other places. Uh, Philadelphia is a, a common example where they tried tricks like this. Um, and oftentimes there many, many places have that sort of uh, some sort of time limit that the state puts on how long it takes. But oftentimes there's no sort of teeth to that. Right, and right. so localities will just kind of ignore it and they'll come up with, you know, workarounds. Uh, oh, we got 40 days to process. Well, all right, we'll just make you wait to actually submit the application. Philly did that for a while. Right. Uh, DC does that. Um, and so, you know, it, but in the end, they, they've had very little success, these cities in um, standing up to lawsuits like this and, in fact, Boston has had to pay out legal fees in the past right. over this exact issue. And so I don't see any reason why it wouldn't end up the same way. And at some point, it feels like it's just a roundabout way of donating to gun rights groups because <laughs> um, they they end up having to pay them regardless. Um, so I, I guess it maybe it plays politically for, for the elected officials in Boston, but um, it, it just seems a bit odd when you zoom out a little bit and look at the whole situation. 
Right. Yeah. No, it's it sort of goes to this uh, ongoing trend of formerly May issue states that were sort of had their carry paradigms overturned by Bruin that have finding new ways to perhaps resist the new paradigm that we find ourselves in. As you pointed out, yeah. Boston previously refused to ex accept applications. They shut down their licensing unit during COVID and then kept it shut down for, uh, well, what the courts found was unreasonably long time. And so they had to pay gun rights groups. And now they're accepting applications, but they're not processing them. So it's just going to be, like you said, just like Philadelphia, it's probably going to end up with a settlement or an order. And gun rights groups are probably going to collect some legal fees when it's all said and done. Probably. But uh, we'll we'll stay on top of that one as well, the rest as well as the rest of these stories. So make sure you come back every week to listen to the show right? Um, uh, or check over at the dot com uh, or sign up for our free newsletter, which goes out every Friday, gives you the latest in one simple email uh, with what's going on in with guns in America. And of course, if you want to go deeper than that, if you want to get a better understanding of these stories, you can buy a membership and help fund our reporting, but also get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis that you will not find anywhere else in the world, on the internet or otherwise. And uh, of course, that's what helps us keep the lights up, helps us stay independent as a publication. And uh, we really appreciate the, the support of our members and everyone else who's doing their part to help us uh, stay in business and keep churning out stories for you. Um, of course, members also get this podcast a day earlier and the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment. We have to do another one of those soon, hopefully. We'll get some members to volunteer for that. But uh, that's all we've got for this week. And we will see you guys again real soon.